Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit seekingtruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part two of the book of Genesis, chapters 38 and 39. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Another very unlikely woman in the genealogy of Jesus Christ was Ruth. Why? Because Ruth's a foreign Moabite. Do you remember where the origin of the Moabites came from? We've had it in Genesis. Who are the Moabites? Remember in Genesis 19, they're escaping Sodom and they're not supposed to look back. Lot's family and Lot's wife looks back and she's turned to a pillar of salt. And so the girls take up with their father in a cave, a paternal incest. And from that union with one girl come the Moabites, the other girl come the Ammonites. Ruth is a Moabite. See the grace of God. The grace of God is bigger than anything. These most unlikely women are being used in the genealogy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Another unlikely woman in that genealogy. Uh, And David was the father of King Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew doesn't even give us the woman's name, the wife of Uriah. Well, Uriah was killed on the front lines. He was sent to the front lines by King David. Why? Because David saw the wife of Uriah bathing on the rooftop over and sent for her. Her name was beautiful bathing Bathsheba. And she also finds herself an unlikely woman in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Very unlikely for this next woman to be in the genealogy because she's a virgin. How many virgins do you know are in a genealogy? One, that's right, the virgins. Virgins don't typically have a pedagogy. One does, the Virgin Mary. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, the anointed one. We know that the angel Gabriel came to Mary, told her that the Lord God would give to him, the baby in her womb would give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. It's the Holy Spirit and Mary. Mary belongs to the house of David. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I have no husband? Mary did not say, how can this be? Because I'm not from the house of David. She is from the house of David. Tamar is the first unlikely woman of the five listed in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus Christ. All five women are biblical heroines because of their yes to life. And they will all five have a part leading to the advent of Messiah, of Yeshua, the son of the tribe of Judah. Tamar is the first, and this is our study tonight. This is Tamar's story in Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. Now, the rabbis tell us that at this time, why was this section placed here? We're in this wonderful story of Joseph, and, and it interrupts to tell us this story. To teach us that his, Judah's brothers, demoted him of his high position when they saw their father's distress. They said, you told us to sell him, Judah. You told us to return to him, and we would have obeyed you. He, he, and he turned away from his brothers. So we see that uh, there's an altercation 
perhaps between the brothers. Judah, they heeded his word to sell Joseph when they saw that it destroyed their father Jacob. They're thinking it wasn't such a good idea and they want to disassociate now from Judah. Judah goes down to the Canaanite country, takes Canaanite wives. It happened at this time, Judah went down from his brothers. He turned to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And there Judah saw the daughters of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son. And he named him Ur. <laughs> Again, she conceived and bore a son, and she called him Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. She was in Chazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So Tamar must come from this Canaanite country. But Ur's, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. The Lord is going to strike down wicked Ur for some reason. We don't know why. Judah said to Onan, now go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground, lest he should give offspring to his brother. And what he did was so displeasing in the sight of the Lord that the Lord slew him also. So now we have two slewn brothers stricken down by the Lord himself in a very quick manner. Now the Jewish rabbis say this was evil in the eyes of the Lord. His evil, like the evil of Onan's, Ur's evil was like the evil of Onan's in that he wasted his semen. As it is written in connection with Onan, that he put him to death also, meaning that Ur's death so was Onan's death. So why should Ur waste his semen? So that Tamar would not become pregnant and her beauty be impaired. Ah, interesting. When I looked up Onanism in the dictionary, yes, it's a word in the dictionary, the first de definition was masturbation. That's a wasting of the seed, a wasting of the semen of life. And that is displeasing to the Lord. These men were struck dead for that. The second definition was coitus interruptus, which is a withdrawal method to prevent birth. The Latin onissimus from the name onan from Genesis 38, who practiced coitus interruptus. So this is a real word. It's named after onan in Genesis 38. And now you know the rest of the story, right? Condoms would also have a similar effect as this because you're wasting, you're collecting the semen and spilling it out and wasting it, wasting the precious seed of life. God is a God of life and life alone. Onan, what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord and the Lord slew him. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my third son grows up. For Judah feared that Shelah would die like his brothers. He really doesn't want to give Shelah to Tamar right now. She's killed the first one. She's killed the second one in his mind. She hasn't really, but in his mind. Now, if, if he gives his third son, he'll die too with her. So he tells her, yes, yes, I'll give you the third son, but go away for a while. Now, the rabbis view Judah's marriage to the daughter of Shua as a decline, which Genesis 31 8.1 records, Judah left, went down from his brothers. With this marriage, Judah betrayed the way of his forefathers. As is portrayed in Malachi chapter 2.11, Judah has broken faith. 
abhorrent things have been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned what is holy to the Lord, what he desires, and espoused daughters of alien gods. He married the daughter of an idolater and thereby betrayed the way of Israel, Jacob, who he had been careful not to marry the daughters of the land. The rabbis imparted special meaning to the names of the kids. They said, Ur in Hebrew means emptied. Onan means caused mourning for himself or death. And Shua's daughter gave birth to Shelah in Chizib, which means so she ceased bearing children. That's it. The firstborn of Shua's daughter married Tamar and died. The second son, Onan, married Tamar. He too expired. The Midrash present the death of both as punishment for their engaging in unnatural intercourse with her. Her did so that Tamar would not become pregnant. He feared that her beauty would diminish as a result of pregnancy. It's a very selfish reason. And Onan did so because he knew that the seed would not count as his own. She'd be bearing a child for, it's, it's over land property. The brothers dwell together. They, they have land property. They have a piece of land in the promised land. In another tradition, Judas punished in this way because he deceived Jacob and he informed him that Joseph was dead. Remember that? The deception of Joseph, uh, about Joseph, the coat, the bloody coat. God told Judah, you have no children, so you do not know the grief at their loss. You deceived your father and told him that his son had died by your life. You shall take a wife and bury your children so that you will know the sorrow that comes from the loss of sons. In the Babylonian Talmud, it states this, yet another tradition views the death of the sons and of Shua's daughter as punishment for Judah's initiating something but not completing it. Judah persuaded his brothers not to kill Joseph, but rather sell him to the Ishmaelites. But he did not finish his task since he could have completely rescued his brother. He should have brought Joseph back to the father, carrying him on his back, and therefore was punished by having to bury his wife and his two sons. He also came down in the world, as it said. Judah went down from his brothers. So Tamar will wait patiently for Judah's promise of the third son, Shelah. Tamar goes down and dwells in her own father's house, waiting, waiting for Shelah. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to the sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Dulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep, she put off her widow's garments and put on a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. Ah, Judah did not keep his word to her. Remember, he said she could have him, and, and, and that didn't happen. Her father-in-law, Judah, had not kept his word to give her his third son. So when Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot, for she had covered her face. Now this is Judah's presumption. She is sitting there with a veil on her face and she presumes she's a harlot. He went over to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Tamar said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And Judah answered, I will send you a kid from the flock, a kid goat. And she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? the goat. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet, your cord, 
and your staff that's in your hand. And he gave them to her. Oh, she's brilliant. This is a very, very, very smart lady. Your signet, your cord, and your staff. None of these items have great monetary value, but they have something better than money. The cord is custom made for Judah only. It's his article of clothing. You wrap yourself, you cover yourself in it. The staff would have been something that Judah, he himself would have carved. And the signet ring would have only had his stamp on it to identify his property. These three things together, the signet, the cord, and the staff that she asked for, these are absolute proof, 100% identification, having all three of these items identify Judah. So this was brilliant. They're as good today in forensic studies as DNA would be or fingerprints. Okay, and he's going to Timnah. There's something else that happened in Timnah. It's in Judges chapter 14. Uh, Samson, remember? The judge Samson was sent down to Timnah where a Philistine girl caught his eye. Do you remember what her name was? Delilah. Lust in Timnah will also get the better of Samson as well as Judah. Judah had promised sons through his third son, Shelah, to Tamar. And Tamar knows that Shelah's all grown up and Judah has not made good on his promise. So Tamar made herself available. She longed to bear sons, to bear life for this tribe, which she was married into through the eldest son. It was her duty. And both her patience and her biological time clock were ticking and running out. Judah promised her a kid goat to lay with her. And she took the pledged collateral of the signet ring, the cord, and the staff from the fourth son of Jacob named Judah. And Judah went into her. And she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away. And taking off her veil, she put back on the garments of her widowhood. And when Judah sent the kid goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge back from the woman's hand, you know, he wants his signet, his staff, his court, he wants that all back. They can't find her. Ha <laughs> ha, brilliant again. She's hiding. She's nowhere to be found. And he asked the men of the place, where's the harlot who was, who was on the wayside? And they said, no harlot's been here. She's not a harlot. So he returned to Judah and said, I, I've not found her. And also the men at the, the place, they said, no harlot has been here. And Judah replied, oh, let her keep the things as her own, lest we be laughed at, lest we be laughed at. You see, I sent the kid and you could not find her. Lest we become a laughingstock. What he's saying is if you keep looking for her in public and asking around and, and this matter is going to become really public and it's going to become a disgrace to Judah, the tribe leader, how much more looking am I required to do to keep my word? We tried. That's good enough. We're done. Now, when was the last time we saw Judah in Genesis? With the brothers putting little Joseph down into the pit. Reuben says, let's not kill him. Let's shed no blood. Let's just put him down in the pit. Remember, he's coming, planning on coming back later to rescue him. Judah is the brother, the one they listen to. Judah says, what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. We could at least make 20 shekels of silver. And his brothers heeded Judah. Judah's a leader of those sons of Leah. They listened to him. Joseph was sold for 20 shekels. He sent down to Egypt. Remember the brothers? Remember the ploy from last week? They took Joseph's robe. They killed a kid goat. They took the blood. They dipped 
the robe in the blood of the kid goat and they take it back to their father. There is some irony here in the story. Just as Judah deceived Jacob with the kid goat, so too will Tamar deceive Judah now also with the kid goat. About three months later, Judah was told that Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. And moreover, she is with child by harlotry. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Oh boy. She does something amazing. She does an act that is absolutely amazing. As she was being brought out, she sent word she sent word ahead to her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And he said, Mark, I pray you, whose are these? Now, do you notice how she didn't bust him in front of the whole town, in front of the whole city? She could have done this all publicly, but she kept it just between she and him. This is amazing restraint on her part. This is amazing virtue on her part. And Judah acknowledged them and said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her my son Shelah. And he did not lie with her again. Now the rabbis say that Tamar did not want to embarrass Judah, her father-in-law, and say, it is from you that I am pregnant, but from the man to whom these things belong. She conceals his identity, although she has his identity in her hands. She reasons, if he confesses by himself, let him confess. And if not, let them burn me, but I will not embarrass him. This is quite uh, a lot of forgiveness on her part. He's lied to her and, and she's forgiving him. It's an amazing story. The Jewish rabbis comment that it is better for a person to be cast into a fiery furnace than to embarrass his fellow man in public. Wow. This is not how our government is operating right now, <laughs> is it? It's pretty classy. If Judah has Tamar burned at the stake, he will be guilty of fornication as well as guilty of three murders. God hates both of those sins. Three murders because she's pregnant with what? Twins. Has God punished Tamar? No, he's given her a double blessing. Two sons. She's being blessed by God. Then Judah acknowledged them and said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not lie with her again. Now, we've had a few twin stories in the Bible. Our last one was Rebecca with Isaac, and they had twins, Esau and Jacob. Now we have another set of twins born to Tamar and Judah. And at the time of Tamar's delivery, the twins were in her womb. And when Tamar was in labor, one of the twins popped through a hand. And the midwife took and bound on the hand a scarlet thread saying, this one came out first. Why is that important? Because the firstborn gets the birthright, double inheritance, and the blessing of the father. But he drew back his hand, went back inside. And behold, his, his brother came out first. And she said, oh, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name will be called Perez. Now, Perez in Hebrew means to breach, which means to burst forth like a whale breaches from the water. This is what Perez did. He breached forth from the womb. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread upon his hand, secondborn, and his name was called Zerah, which means dawning or shining in Hebrew. But the birthright and the blessing we can trace through the firstborn Perez. 
and they are both in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, or Perez is, and Judah. The, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, etc. So they both make it, uh, uh, but Perez is the one who the blessing will come through. Now we can get back to the Joseph story, and it's just as good. Joseph was taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all Joseph did to prosper in his hands. So Joseph found favor in the sight and attended him and he put him as overseer over his entire household he put him in charge of all that he had do you see there is a blessing of the lord there's an anointing on joseph everything he touches turns to gold everything he touches prospers potiphar recognizes that and puts him in charge of everything he has from the time that potiphar made him overseer in his house over all he had the lord blessed the egyptian's house for joseph's sake not for Potiphar's sake, for Joseph's sake. We got to hang on to this guy. The blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in his house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And having him, he had no concern for anything but the food which he ate. So all Potiphar has to worry about now is going from meal to the next meal to the next meal. Everything else is taken care of by Joseph. It's kind of like going to the cloisters on the plat, right? <laughs> just, you just got to worry about the next meal. That's all. So because of Joseph's proficiency, Potiphar had no concern for anything but the food which he's going to eat next. The, the rabbis write that he didn't even have concern for his wife, Mrs. Potiphar, really. Now, Joseph was very handsome and good looking. Oh, handsome and good looking. Both. <laughs> Some of the translations say had curly hair. <laughs> and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph. And Potiphar's wife said, lie with me. And Joseph refused and said to his master's wife, Lo, having me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my hand. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has Potiphar kept anything back from me except yourself. Because you are his wife. How then can I do this? This great wickedness and sin against God. Now, one thing Joseph realizes, Joseph, the son of Judah, son of Jacob, sorry, he realizes that this sin would be against Potiphar and it would be against God. He sin, it, and this is what sin is. Sin is always against God and it's always against man. Always it affects the body of Christ. That's why we confess in a confessional to God through the priest and to the church to man. We, we, it affects the whole body of Christ. And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie with her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But Joseph left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. 
And when she saw that Joseph had left the garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, Potiphar has brought among us a Hebrew to insult us. Joseph came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And when I cried and I lifted my voice and cried, Joseph left his garment with me and fled and got out of the house. True? Then she laid up his garment by her until his master Potiphar came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to insult me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, Joseph left his garment with me and fled out of the house. And his master Potiphar, when he heard these words, which the wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. And his anger was kindled. He feels totally betrayed by Joseph, the one he trusted with everything. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, even in prison. He gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph care of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the doer of it. Joseph, do you see the annoying on him? He's blessed again, even in the pits of the prison. The keeper of the prison paid no heed to anything that was in Joseph's care. That's how much he trusted him. That's the type of leader he is. That's the type of anointing blessing of God that's on him. Because the Lord was with Joseph. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. There's another Joseph in the New Testament. And this is the last thing. It's Joseph of Nazareth, the foster father of Jesus of Nazareth. Both Josephs, Old Testament and New Testament, are dreamers. Remember Joseph's dreams, the she's bowing down, the sun and moon and stars bowing to him. Joseph in the New Testament also has many dreams. He dreams many times mostly for the protection of his family, Mary and baby Jesus. Both of these Josephs are chaste. They have the virtue of chastity, very strong. Joseph rebukes, rebuffs, rebuffs Mrs. Potiphar. He's chaste, he's pure, he's strong. Joseph in the New Testament is also chaste. Chastity is one of his greatest virtues. We see him with the, the rod, with the spikenard or the white lilies for his purity, his chastity. Both Joseph's Old Testament and New will help accomplish God's ultimate plan of salvation. They both have a little piece of it. Both Joseph are part of God's plan for all Abraham's children and all of God's children. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we also have a part in that plan, that now we are the ones called on uh, to continue this plan, to help others come to know the Messiah, Yeshua, the King, the King of Kings, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God. Help each of us this week as we go forth. Help us to be that part of the plan that you've called us to, that you had destined for us, that we were born at a time such as this, for this time in salvation history. Use us, O Lord God, fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us go out and light the world on fire. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. That was part two of the book of Genesis, chapters 38 and 39, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.